0: Okay, um, so we've been doing this study on postmodernism and the monomyth, Joseph Campbell, The Hero's Journey. So it's interesting that today is college day because today we're gonna be talking about the epilogue, what happens at the end of the story, which seems kind of weird because you are all starting like college. You're all like entering your semester and we're gonna talk about the end. But I started realizing that there's something appropriate about talking about the end at the very beginning of things. And so this week I watched the movie Split with James McAvoy. Has anybody seen it? Are you familiar with this? It's like a thriller by M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, I didn't have any interest in watching it because I don't do scary movies. Uh, They terrify me. I have an overactive imagination. So when I was a kid, my dad used to watch this show called The X-Files. And I would sometimes watch it with my dad and there's this rule I had in the back of my mind. If the monster died at the end of the episode, I could sleep easy that night because the monster was killed but if the monster survived like all hell would break loose in my imagination and i would not be able to sleep because i knew that the monster was coming for me next so i remember for instance there's this one episode it was like the sewer monster and the episode ends with like agent Mulder like cutting the monster in half like sealing this door and the monster floats away and i remember thinking like ah i can get a good night of sleep tonight and then the very last shot is like the monster floating down the water and then it's eyes like click open. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> like, oh man. And so uh, like the movie Split came out. I was like, I have no desire to watch this movie. That one can go on by. But I love the movie Unbreakable. And I found out that there was like a tag uh, from Unbreakable and Split. And I was like, well now I have to watch it. So, I put it Split on while my daughter was taking a nap in the middle of the day because it's the only time I feel like I could watch this movie. Um, so, I put it on and I watched it in the whole movie. I'm like, where is this? Like, wh- how does Unbreakable fit into this? Like, how does Unbreakable fit into this? And then, like, the movie ends and I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, I was so mad. And then all of a sudden, like, the post credit scene, you know, that Marvel does so often. Like, we now have to watch credits. We all used to get to leave the movie, like, Early and now we have to watch all these credits of all these people that worked very hard on this movie that we just enjoyed to see this bonus scene. And so there's like the scene for Unbreakable, it's like the epilogue and it ends and you're like, oh, there's gonna be another movie. Like, oh, this is part of something bigger. And so there's like this this idea that we all have that like the story ends, but it, it doesn't end. Like it continues on. And with all of you starting college, it's good to think about like how you want this to end. So sports teams do this all the time. At the very first game, they know what they want the last game to be. Like they know that they want to hold the trophy at the very end of the season. Like that's why they're playing this whole season. When you start your first day of college, we always have such like lofty ambitions I remember like every year college would start, I'm I'm gonna wake up at seven, I'm gonna go hit the gym, then I'm gonna go eat breakfast in the cafeteria, I'll have a cup of coffee, and then I'll go to the library and study for an hour, and then I'll go to all my classes, and I'll be in bed by like 10 or 11. And then like the first night, you know, it's like three in the morning, I'm like, I should probably put the video games up, and I could like sleep through my first class, it'll just be the syllabus, you know? Like, I'll just skip that one. Like, and uh, quickly, like we forget like the end goal, the end result. And I want to show you this clip from uh, The Office because uh, I think it summed it up so well. weird thinking? thing is, now, now I'm exactly where I want to be. I got my dream job at Cornell. And I'm still just, just thinking about my old house. house. Only now, now they're the ones I meet here. I wish this was a way, way to know, know you're in the good old days before you actually up. left. Them. I'm write a song about that. <laughs> All right, so we're going to be in John chapter 21. So the whole reason we're looking at the idea of the epilogue is because most scholars think that John 21 was written much later than the rest of the book of John. And John's really interesting. John alone has this desire to like talk about himself in a really uh, flattering way. So you read the other Gospels, but John's Gospel, he refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Like he has this, uh, like I don't know if it's like arrogance or just confidence that he knew his relationship with Jesus, but so often John will refer to himself as the one that Jesus loved. And so when the epilogue begins, we find our characters, we find everybody, and they've gone back to the life that they're familiar with. They've gone back to everything that they know. So it starts off, I'm going to read the whole chapter. It says, Afterward Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberius. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas is called Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan, Galilee, the son of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. Don't you love Jesus, like, the sarcasm, like, the teasing right there? He's like, how's it going, you know? Like, he doesn't know. He's like watching them toil. He's like, what's up? It's my translation. I'm studying (laughs) Hebrew, so I know. He said, (laughs) because it's written in New Testament in Greek. uh? (laughs) He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples whom Jesus loved there it is said to Peter it is the Lord as soon as Peter heard him say it is the Lord he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water the other disciples followed in the boat towing the net full of fish for they were not far from the shore about a hundred yards when they landed they saw a fire of burning coals there was fish on it and some bread Jesus said to them bring some of the fish you have caught okay I want to stop there and we'll, we'll focus on that first So I want to tell this story. So when I was, I'm from Florida. Uh, I have orange juice running through my veins. When the weather drops below 60 degrees, I freeze. Like I can't handle it. Tennessee winters are the end of me. Uh, For my birthday, my wife got me this giant leather like insulated coat because she knows like if I'm out in the elements for more than like 10 minutes, like I just don't make it. Uh, (laughs) So I grew up in Florida and when I was a, a senior in high school, we were now in we were living in Nashville by this point, but I had this opportunity to spend like my summer in Florida, going right before I started college. And at one point, one of my buddies invited me to go like deep sea fishing. So we're on this deep sea fishing boat, and uh, I was all like six foot, ninety five pounds as a senior in high school. And uh, so I remember like there's this fishing rod, and all of a sudden, like I feel my line start to go, and I was like, "This is it. This is my moment." And I like grab it and I start like reeling in, and it was so much harder than I could have imagined. And so I'm just like fighting and striving and like and for an hour and a half I am just dueling this fish and I'm gaining like no traction but I'm like holding my ground and I remember the like sun was pouring and like sweat was going down the side of my face and I was like I will not give up like I don't have many strengths but I have like just the most stubborn perseverance of anyone you're likely to meet I was like I will not let what is surely a whale get away. <laughs> and I'm just holding on to this fishing line. And like the people on my side of the boat were like, come on, man, like, don't give up. And I'm holding on. And then this like 260 pound man like comes around the side of the boat. And he looks and he's like, who over here has caught the whale? And I was like, that would be me. And he was like, you have my line, you jerk. And I was like, What? He was like, you've hooked my line, and we've been struggling against each other for the past hour. Like, let it go. And it was, I mean, just like crestfallen. Like, my entire summer was just like wasted in that one moment. I had toiled and toiled against this man, double my size for nothing. Like, the lines came up completely empty. And this is like what you see with the apostles. Like, they struggled and struggled and struggled, and it was worthless. Like, nothing came up. And I was thinking about how often, like, we try so hard to like achieve something, and we either get it or we don't get it. But either way, like, we're disappointed in the end results. And then I was thinking of this story of this of the, of these fish. And there's something that John does that's really interesting. So they catch the fish. Peter, being overambitious, like, jumps in the water, swims to shore, leaves them to do the hard work. And then John has this really interesting little tag at the end. So they get there and. It says, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals, there with fish on it and some bread. This is what I find so interesting. is like, Jesus doesn't need their catch. He doesn't need their fish. Like, he already has it. He already has fish. He, always, he already has bread. He already has everything that they need. Singing so often, like, we approach Jesus with, like, the things that we have, our gifts, and we have these lofty goals of, like, the great things we can do for the kingdom of God. What's interesting is like Jesus doesn't need them. Like God doesn't need what we have. He already has everything that he needs, but he really wants us to contribute. My daughter, she's two and a half and she loves to contribute and it will ultimately always lead into a mess. So she's getting to this point now where like she loves to drink apple juice. And so whenever she wants more, she wants to hold the cup and she holds the cup like a 95 year old woman would hold the cup, like just all shaking. So you're trying to like hold this like two gallon thing of orange juice and her cup, supporting as like you're just shaking, and you're just pouring apple juice all over the floor. You know, our grocery budget has skyrocketed just from her wanting to hold a cup of apple juice, and like so she wants to help, she wants to contribute, but it, like it doesn't actually help. But you want them to have this experience, you want them to like grow into a person. I was like at Trader Joe's one day, and this man was coming through the line, and I think he had like a three or four year old son maybe. And the son, you know, it's like a, a con, but the candy's like always right at the checkout because you know you can like exploit the like sugar cravings of a child. And so this like, this young boy like grabs a candy bar and he's like, Dad, please, like, I wanna get this. And the dad was like, Yeah, okay. And so he grabs it and I like scan it through the line. And then the dad like reaches into his wallet and the little boy's like, No, no, daddy, like, use my money. And he holds up like 22 cents. I remember like internally like kind of laughing. I'm like, that won't afford a candy bar. Like, like, you idiot. You know, like, just just kidding. I don't think I don't think of kids that way. Um, but I'm just like I was like you know, and I and the dad like looks at him and I'm like, oh, the dad's thinking the same thing I'm thinking. And the dad like reaches down. And he's like, oh, thank you, and he takes the money. And then he looks at me, and it's one of those like profound philosophical moments. He's like, my son thinks he can like afford the candy bar with this much money. And I was like, yeah, he does. You need to to teach him better. (laughs) And then the dad's like, and the dad's like, he thinks he can afford the k bar with this. And then he goes, and he can. And he like pockets it and then like pays the total. And I was thinking like, the son didn't need to pay. Like the dad had it anyway. But the dad wanted his son to participate. Like the dad wanted his son to contribute something. Like this is how it always goes. And I was thinking about like, just the humor of this situation. It would be like as if, I Invited one of you over for dinner and you're you asked what you could bring and I was like, you know what bring a Bring a side of macaroni and cheese and then you got to my house And I had already made macaroni and cheese and you're like, but you told me to bring some I was like I know I did we'll just we'll, we'll have both like you'd feel foolish you would feel silly But like so Jesus does he's like go ahead like I already have what we need but bring it anyway Like you could contribute some Like you could have enough this thing about like the society we live in and so often I don't feel like I'm enough, like, I don't feel capable to the task. Like Every Saturday night I go through this like, anxiety attack about teaching this class in the morning. Like, I'm nervous, like, I might not have enough things to give, like, I might not have interesting stories to share. Like I approach the text and I'm like, I might come up dry, bankrupt. Sometimes before I take a test or a quiz or I'm writing a paper, I'm like, I don't know if I have what it takes. When I'm like hanging out with friends, I'm like, I might not be clever enough. I might not be funny enough. I might not be strong enough. I have all these thoughts and feelings and it all roots in this theory that like, I don't really have anything to contribute. That I'm spiritually, like mentally, emotionally, morally, just like bankrupt. And the story I love because Jesus says, it doesn't like matter what you've got, what you can contribute. You are enough. You yourself are enough. And if you read the Gospels, it's full of these people that have just garbage to give Jesus. Like it's worthless. It's trinkets and trash. And Jesus goes like, I'll use that. I'll take that. The kingdom is full of people that don't have anything. I love the story of the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only story that appears in all four of the Gospels. And in that story, Jesus looks around and it's almost like he's exhausted and just run out. He's like, you feed the people are just tired she's like you take care of them and they start coming up with excuses they're like it would take a year's worth of wages to feed all these people not to mention i don't know where we would go and then she's just like what have you got and he's like this kid has like a couple loaves of bread and a couple of fish and she's like okay we'll use that okay, i just always like to imagine that it wasn't until the food got to the very back of the the group of the multitudes that the people realized what was happening it seems just so unimpressive, anticlimactic. Jesus like breaks the bread and passes it. Breaks it and passes it. He like uses whatever it is that we can contribute. Whatever we've got. Your feelings of inadequacy, it's okay. Like you can use those things. Even the foolish things. The things that you feel like have no place. Those are the things that so often Jesus uses. So often like when I'm like teaching or talking or anything, I realize that like my anxious, over-imaginative fear like plays out, like being afraid is okay. Like it can be a superpower sometimes. Like I love the series Josh is doing because so often what we find in the Christian story is like the very worst thing about us is also the best thing about us. Like our shadow side is also like what our positive side can come from. Things that we're afraid of, things that haunt us are also things that God can use in the kingdom. Like it's all included, all of it belongs. So then we get to this part where, and this is why I find the story getting really interesting. So they walk up, full of fish, and it says, "When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There were fish on it and some bread." Same about this idea of like, burning coals of fire. When I was in uh, a senior in college, we started going camping every weekend, and uh, I'd go with the soccer team, and we started playing this game where we would pick like a hot coal out of the fire and we'd like toss it to each other, and you just like, and when it was nighttime, it had the coolest effect because like you just watched this coal like flying through the air and. As long as you only held it for a second, you were good. Um, And being like just dumb college guys, we would try to get like more and more creative. So you'd like try to go like behind the back and like, so you'd like, kind of like have to like soft catch it and like toss it. But as long as you kept like juggling it and didn't let it like rest on your fingers too long, you wouldn't get burned. Um, And I remember at one point, like my friend, he like threw the hot coal to me and I like caught it and I tried to go like around the back and like we lost the coal, like it flew off into the darkness and it's like, oh, well, we'll just get another one. And I, we went to bed that night and I woke up the next morning and there's this like beam of sunlight hitting me like right in the face. I was like, where is this coming from? I look and there's just like a scorch mark in this tent that is not mine. And then I like look and the scorch mark has like proceeded from the tent to the end of my sleeping bag. And I had thrown the hot coal into my tent, had burned a hole through the tent and then through the whole, like my sleeping bag. And this was all borrowed gear. We're thinking like, this is just like not gonna go well. And so, like, whenever I, like, think of the, like, the idea of, like, hot coals is this, but John's doing something really interesting. He's thinking about this idea, like, when Peter denies Christ, and this is what we're going to see, he denies him around a fire. And John is, like, setting up the passage. So here we are again, like, Peter is in front of a fire, and he's standing with Jesus, and we're going to, like, see what unfolds. He's thinking about the power of memories. And I wanted to, like, just for a few minutes, I wanted to, like, give you guys time to think about this. I'm just gonna say a word. I just want you to think for a minute. Like what is the first memory that pops in your head? Like what is the very first thought? Because memories have such a strong impact on us. Like our past has such a powerful force in like the way we move forward. So I'm just gonna take a few minutes and just share words with you. And I just want you to see like what memories pop up. So the first word is family. vacation Your ex Christmas. It's interesting, these words, right? They, like, trigger things. And they don't always have to be positive. For one person, the word family might bring, like, just wonderful, wonderful thoughts and feelings. For another person, it might be darker, it might be harder. Some of them, it's complicated. For me, like, growing up, Christmas was this wonderful time. We had so many wonderful traditions. Uh, We would read the Father Christmas Letters by J.R.R. Tolkien. We would have hot cocoa. We would get to open a present on Christmas Eve. And then when I was a sophomore, my parents got a divorce and all the traditions vanished just like that. I remembered Christmas didn't become a holiday I look forward to anymore. Like that, the memory changed. The thing about like memories are so interesting, the things that stay with us. Uh, when I was in grad school, I, was, I had to do this presentation at the very end of the semester. This was like 20% of our grade. And I was giving this presentation and I kept talking about how this author, how she had these points she was trying to make and how clever she was and just the beauty and articulation of the article she wrote. And after five minutes, the teacher raised his hand and goes, excuse me, but the article and author you keep referring to is a male. And it just like took the wind right out of the presentation, you know? And from all the classmates, I had been referring to this presentation I was supposed to be doing. And I was referring to this guy as a girl the whole time. And what's funny is like, I got an A in the class, like it doesn't matter, but like, what's really weird is like, that stays with me. Like I still haven't let it go. Like I should be able to just like, it doesn't matter. And I still think about that. Like I still think about that. Like if I see that teacher, I'm like, oh man, there's the guy that called me out in the middle. Like, it's like, we hold on to all these little things. I remember dating this girl in college. This is for seven years ago. And she used to always make sure the volume was uneven. Like it was just like a pet peeve of hers. Like if the volume on the remote, like on the radio wasn't even. Like she would just turn it a little bit. So now when I get in the car, I turn the volume to odd. (laughs) (laughs) Seven years later, I still turn it like, and isn't it like, and like, we're like, but we all do this. We all have things that we're like, how am I not over that yet? How am I still doing this? And it says here, John says, they got and there was a fire. And he's just like setting it up. Like he's bracketing the story. It says, Simon Peter climbed aboard, dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. With so many, the, the net was not torn. Jesus said, come have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was how, this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, that you dressed yourself, and you went where you wanted. But now you are old, and you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. And I love this passage because Jesus, he rewrites the memory. He takes this horrible moment, and he recasts it. He retells it. And this is so often, I think, what Christianity is all about. Is that we so often don't realize that sin is the middle word and it's not the last word. That our failings, our shortcomings, it's the middle word. It's not the final word. What Jesus is interested in is retelling the story that we've told ourselves. So if you go read the story of the prodigal son, all it is is the story about people that have different ideas about what reality is. So you have the younger son, and he thinks that the very best he could do is be a servant in his dad's house. His dad tells him a completely different story. When he comes home, he's like, you're my son. Like, we're gonna throw you a party. And then the older son, he thinks that he has to slave away. And his dad tells him a different story. He says, all of this is yours. Says you could have thrown a party whenever you wanted. And then this is where it gets interesting is you, those two people have to decide which story they're gonna believe, which is the same thing we all encounter. We have to decide like, to decide what story we're gonna believe. Are we gonna decide to believe the story that we're forgiven? Are we gonna believe Jesus' retelling of our story? Or are we gonna decide no? We're gonna continue on this path, like relive these memories. And John's saying it's something different. He's changing it to something else. He's offering this chance to rewrite the story. There's so many of us, I think, that would love to have closure on some moment where there wasn't closure the girl who like changed the volume, we thought we were gonna have like a a very like polite, respectable breakup, and then like it all fell apart, you know? So like we tried to do the like, we'll just, we'll be friends and it didn't work. Like it didn't happen, you know? And uh, I think the worst part for me with all of it, I was talking to my wife about this the other day, I was like, there was no closure. Like we never got to have like a final conversation. Like there were things that I think we both wanted to say to the other one that ended up going unsaid. And then there comes a point where you just have to accept that sometimes in life, like, there is no closure. Like, things just don't work out the way you want. You don't get to say, like, that last word. And, like, things end abruptly. And, like, what Jesus is offering Peter here is closure. He's not saying, like, hey, it's all right, buddy. He lets him, like, relive this memory and then replace it with something different. It's like, so when Peter remembers the coals of the fire, he doesn't see himself denying Christ. He sees himself getting this, like, opportunity to tell Christ that he loves him, to see something completely different. And then there's the last part of the story here in John 21. So Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, I want him to remain alive until I return. What is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus said many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose they would, that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would have been written. And this last thought I want to talk about is like this idea of like Instagram, like Facebook, Twitter, and stuff. Because what you see with, with Peter. Is he's asking one question to prevent himself from asking another question. And the question is all about comparison. He looks at John and he goes, What about him? It's like what happens with siblings when you're a child and your parents like you load the dishwasher. And you're like, Well, what about my sister? What is she gonna do? And your mom's like, I don't I'll tell your sister what she's gonna do, you're gonna load the dishwasher, right? Like, go load the dishwasher. Don't worry about your sister, don't pay attention to them. And so Peter asks this one question to deflect the harder question of who am I? Like, who am I? Jesus tells him, here's the things that are laid out for you. Here's your story. Here's your path. And Peter immediately looks at somebody else. And I'm not like against Facebook. I'm not against Instagram. I'm not against Twitter. Like this is one of those rants. It's just something like kind of like insidious and like secretive has happened. And it's that when we get on these platforms, we start playing this comparison game. In either way, it's completely destructive. Because we either look at people and we're like, oh, I'm much better than this person. And this is what's interesting is like, popularity is now like quantifiable. Like we can see how better we are by how many likes we have compared to other people. Like I was reading the news, in Germany, there's now a machine that you can pay a dollar and it will give you 100 likes on a post. Like it's a thing now, like we will buy likes. I was like, that's brilliant. It was one of those, was like, I wish I had thought of that. Like, like, but it, like, it's like, it's this idea, like, but we want to comp- we want to compare. One of my favorite movies, Chariots of Fire, Eric Little, he's trying to decide, like, if he should run in the Olympics. His dad says, don't compromise. He says, don't compare yourself. Comparison is the work of the devil. He says, run in such a way that the world can stand back and wonder. And compar- comparison fails on either front because we either compare our worst to someone else's best and we feel like a failure. Or we compare our best to someone else's worst and we feel superior, even though we shouldn't. But either way, we're looking at somebody else and it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. And Jesus is saying, like, don't look at somebody else. Don't pay attention to somebody else. There's this story of the desert fathers and this young disciple went to his master and he said, how do I become a Christian? How do I become a follower of Jesus? And he said two things. One, don't judge anyone ever, and second, ask yourself, who am I? Those two things that's all it takes. Don't judge anyone and ask yourself who am I?" Because like when we judge people, we so often are wrong, our motivations are wrong, like our theories are wrong. all the things we think about this person like end up falling apart. When I was a senior in college, I was dating this girl, and uh, I met the captain of the soccer team, and he was like the really cool guy, and we had kind of like brushed shoulders in the past, but we never really met. And so we were at a Preds game and my girlfriend at the time was like, Hey, Travis wants to like meet downstairs. You want to like meet Travis? I was like, yeah, sure. So I went downstairs and I remember like seeing and I didn't put two and two together, but Travis had this really surprised look when he saw me, but he was like very friendly to me and talked to me the whole time. And Travis didn't realize that my girlfriend at the time was like with me. And he was actually just wanting to meet up with my girlfriend. And when I showed up, it surprised him because he was trying to date her. And so it got to be this really awkward and weird, and so we ended up becoming friends out of the situation. And to make matters really worse is, like, we became friends, and he decided to, like, not date my girlfriend, which I was thankful of at the time. But then, like, after a month into our friendship, he was like, hey, do you know this girl named Brooke, who was one of my ex-girlfriends? And I was like, yes, I do. And he was like, we started dating, and I was like, man, our friendship's going to be really weird, you know? (laughs) Like, this is so bizarre. But I remember up until like I started to know Travis, like I hated Travis. Like he was just the biggest jerk. When we would like play intramurals against each other, he was like so arrogant, so confident. He was so good at sports and I just hated him. I didn't know anything about him except that he was good at sports, but I thought that was enough to hate him. Um, And then I remember like this weird thing started happening where I, I started getting to know him, to see him and understand him as a person. And like my heart towards him changed. I was like, this is a good guy. This is someone that I could ultimately become friends with. And this is like what judging does. This is what so often happens. As we look at other people, we like create, we come with these like illustrious stories for all the reasons these people do these things. We have no idea. We don't know like what is going on in people's world. And yet we feel like so confident about who they are. I wanna end with this poem by Mary Oliver. She's one of my favorite poets, and she has this beautiful poem. It's called The Messenger. It says, My work is loving the world. Here are the sunflowers. There are the hummingbird, equal seekers of sweetness. Here are the quickening yeast. There are the blue plums. Here are the calm deep in the speckled sand. Are my boots old? Is my coat torn? Am I no longer young and still not half perfect? Let me keep my mind on what matters, which is my work, which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished. Phoebe, the Delphium, the sheep in the pasture, and the pasture, which is mostly rejoicing, since all the ingredients are here, which is gratitude, to be given a mind and a heart, and these body clothes, a mouth with which to give shouts of joy, to the moth and the wren, to so sleepy dug-up calm, telling them all over and over how it is that we live forever. I love the line it says, which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished. Another name for God is surprise. And when we allow ourselves to be surprised by situations, when we allow ourselves to go into situations open-handed to whoever this person is, not who we think they are, to allow ourselves to be surprised when God rewrites our story, this is what it means to be astonished. This is what I think it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to live with unity with God. Uh, Thank you. Any thoughts, reactions? That stood out, or any comments from from you all, anybody? Yeah.